My name is Dr. Edwin Cruz, and you're listening to the Bridge Builders podcast. Supporting women during pregnancy is one of the joyful parts of medicine. Or is it? It can, of course, be an emotional and sometimes stressful journey for women and their healthcare teams. But there are also problems that aren't always visible from the outside, unless you know what to look for. Today, my co-host, Dr. Jespreet Saini and I are talking with Dr. Wendy Burton, who is a GP with a special interest in maternity and pediatric care. We're talking about a shared antenatal care model, what's good about it, but also what can go wrong behind the scenes when it comes to communication, trust and collaboration. I personally wonder if it would be better to replace the term shared antenatal care with collaborative maternity care. Wendy, welcome to the Bridge Builders podcast. Thanks, Edwin. We're going to talk about shared antenatal care today, which is a very interesting topic. So thanks for uh, coming along. And the first question, Wendy, is can you give us a brief outline of the history of uh, shared care in Australia? Well, Edwin, I guess really all I can ever do is talk from my own lived experience. Um, But as it happened, I was a child of the 60s born to parents who are country GPs. So my experience of antenatal care started from that premise where the uh, women were looked after by my parents. There were no midwives at the small community hospital in our town. Um, And uh, when they went into labour, they would be managed to a certain point by the nursing staff and then mum or dad would pop over for the birth itself. Uh, Moving on from there into the late 1980s and I did my training uh, in Brisbane, uh, did my uh, intern and residency at a tertiary maternity hospital where the uh, antenatal clinics were just overrun by by, just hundreds and hundreds of women uh, every every session and uh, it was just so fast paced. Moving out into general practice, there was certainly... um, a sense this was now the early 90s where oh my gosh please uh, can the women be looked after by yourselves in general practice and so I, I guess I've stepped into my world as a GP always having been expected to do antenatal care always considering that was just part and parcel of the work that I did having come through a hospital system where I had worked in a very busy antenatal clinic uh, and recognizing that I needed to keep a skill base around that. I moved to Sydney uh, in early to mid-1990s and had seven and a half years there and the system was a little bit different, Edwin. When I got there, I guess I thought, ta-da, I'm here, how can I help? And I was very promptly advised that I would have to um, follow a, a process, I would have to accredit uh, with my all the maternity hospitals I wished to provide antenatal care with. Uh, and that inter- included attending clinic and mandatory education updates. So, you know, I did that. Uh, and then when I returned to Queensland in the early 2000s, it wasn't a formalised process. And um, personally, I have been involved then in helping set up the hospital that I, I trained in, so the Marta Mothers Hospital in Brisbane, set up what was initially a just a education, communication, relationship building exercise, but has become a mandatory alignment is what it's called, where GPs who do provide shared antenatal care are required by the hospital to do a minimum amount of education uh, and and upskilling and are provided with resources uh, and such. 
but it varies depending which part of the country you're in. I think it varies depending on the funding of your local health service. It varies on the health needs of the women in your care. It's, it's simply not one size that fits all, but it's been an interesting journey, Edwin. It certainly sounds like an interesting journey, and it is, um, it's also interesting that um, there are so many different uh, models, although there are probably lots of similarities as well. If I look at the model here in the Sunshine Coast, then um, it, it, looks that in re- it looks like in recent years there is a downward trend uh, with regards to shared care with GPs, and so maybe we can talk a little bit about that later. Um, but, but first of all, Wendy, I'm interested to hear from you, what are some of the advantages of uh, shared maternity care? So um, I guess ultimately um, my consideration of shared antenatal care or shared maternity care, because Edwin, you're right perhaps to use that differential term, um, uh, especially from the general practice perspective, of course, pregnancy doesn't commence um, 12 weeks or 16 weeks or 20 weeks in and it doesn't finish six weeks after the birth of the child. It's a it's a continuum from preconception through the antenatal journey into the postnatal and neonatal and beyond. So a shared maternity journey uh, across the sectors uh, and between you know hospitals, communities, GPs, midwives, obstetrician, I guess it really allows just that a better broader view uh, of the women in our care. Uh, it's also something that Cheryl Hurst um, outlined in her report some years ago that birth should be local and feel local. You know, having women having to drive for half an hour, an hour or so for a, an appointment uh, and then back home again, especially if, if there's, you know, other children involved, it's just difficult. Why not make it simpler for women and, and allow them to have care close to home, with it, preferably with a known care provider who knows the history, knows the background, understands the comorbidities. I think there's a lot of pluses with that. Wendy, just uh, touching on some of those points that you mentioned uh, in, in the last uh, couple of moments, um, one of the initial things you mentioned was uh, in relation to mandatory education and processes. Uh, and, and there's a movement there from antenatal care being just part of the job. Uh, to a bit more structure um, and uh, education before GPs can provide uh, maternity care. Do you feel that this is taking us in the right direction? Is that extra education um, something that uh, is required, first of all? I mean, I I imagine that previously it was all on the job training with some uh, education during medical school. Uh, Has that put us in a position now where we're doing better than we were before? I think it actually depends and it comes down actually to the individual GP. So some GPs, for example, um, have uh, excellent um, experience in the maternity field. They may have done extended uh, rotations through uh, a maternity facility. A number of uh, GPs hold the diploma of the Royal Australian New Zealand College of Obstetrics and Gynaecology, so the DRANSCOG. So they've committed, you know, months more of, of extra training in that field. And they're right up on the mark and, and really have a very comprehensive uh, understanding. Other GPs, listen, they've done enough to pass the exams. Um, they're registrars or, or fellows now of whichever college. Uh, but truth is, uh, they, they did their intern and residency and beyond uh, in a hospital that had no birthing. So they may have had only undergraduate uh, experience in antenatal clinic. 
and this field is moving so fast. I, uh, I, I stand in front of GPs four to six to eight times a year educating and I learn at least one new thing every single time. I think in order to keep us on our game, uh, we really do need to commit to some additional uh, education. And I think it also then reassures the rest of the team that we understand where maternity is heading, what the expectations are for the women, for the hospital, for the emerging technologies that we're using, uh, for the communications, just how all this works in practice. So I think it's a positive thing, but I understand that there is some angst in the general practice community about mandatory, um, whatever you wish to call it, alignment, accreditation. It's the uh, one of the challenges of uh, being a generalist, I guess. Um, the shared models, you, you already mentioned there are different uh, versions. It seems quite complex if you look at shared responsibilities, lines of communication, uh, sharing of information between GPs and, and hospital midwives, shared guidelines, education, which you already touched on, credentialing, governance and funding. Can you walk us through the important ingredients with regards to who does what, when and how? So Edwin, listen, that's a great question and it's complex and it breaks down into so many parts, most of which you've just mentioned. But I might start with perhaps the simplest model, uh, and that's when there's a consultation uh, with a woman who's actually chosen to have private obstetric care. And I suspect most of us in general practice in that instance will uh, make sure we've got the basics covered off on in terms of, yes, we're confident that the woman is pregnant. Uh, there's no significant risk that we need to flag to our colleague for you know, a very urgent appointment. We'll do the referral, and the woman is usually seen these days quite early when i first started the obstetricians privately wouldn't see women until usually around the 12 week mark which i always assumed was because of the um, high rate of miscarriage but may not have been these days they're mostly seeing them closer to the eight week mark and that care really generally will transfer across to the obstetrician and they will have the conversations they will order the investigations they will do the follow-up and usually you and I will get a little letter after the birth uh, and perhaps after the six-week review and, and so that care really has transferred to our um, uh, obstetric colleague for the duration of the pregnancy and comes back to us after the six-week checkup. For women however who are having public care there are so many different models and and here is where I think we really do need to be strategic and deliberate around who does what and how do we communicate that and the importance of communicating and the importance of us all singing from the same hymn sheet. It's, it's very confusing for women when the midwife says X and the GP says Y and the obstetrician says M and, and she's getting conflicting information and advice. Usually, unless a woman falls into a high risk category for which we're making a, a, a prompt and uh, uh, early referral uh, and she's triaged appropriately and seen early, usually all the first trimester, most of the first half of a pregnancy will actually occur in the community uh, with the woman seeing a, a GP, unless of course she's having private midwifery care, which is another model entirely and more akin to the private obstetric model. In that case, we really need to be on our game in order to be able to give women information on which to make informed choices about the investigations they do or do not wish to partake in. And there's so much change in this area. Really being an expert on them is, is 
so difficult, even if you're interested in, in keeping your ear to the ground about these things. Um, and then making sure that we communicate in a timely, effective and efficient manner. Um, I've sat in committees meeting monthly over the last 10 years with the hospital staff and reviewed critical events. And, and often it's, it's simple and basic GP 101 stuff, such as not mentioning in the past history that the woman has uh, significant anxiety or depression, uh, but having her on high dose of an SSRI, for example, you know, our midwifery colleagues who do the triage, you know, put two and two together and figure something's missing. But the referral simply should be more robust than that. Or we tick a box saying this woman needs an urgent review, but we don't elaborate on, on why. Uh, and, and it's just not good enough. We need to do this better. When the women get to the hospital, especially in a situation where you do have skilled GPs, and, and I do... Um, uh, wish to 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 play and, and to honour my my Dranscog holding colleagues. I myself don't hold a Dranscog, uh, but you know when you've got a GP who's clearly is skilled and interested in this area, it's very disheartening if uh, our midwifery colleagues uh, disparage us or or um, you know tell women that GPs don't know about this part of medicine that this they're not good at that. I did even once have a, a midwife tell one of my patients that we're just in it for the money. Um, which is very disappointing. So, so it's very important when the woman gets to the hospital that there is some clear understanding about how she wishes to have her care. Oh, and then Edwin, my goodness, it just goes and jazz. It just goes into funding models and um, convenience and uh, comfort and relationships. And gosh, where do you want me to go from here? Yeah, it's a massive topic. It is. Um, yeah, we, we could talk for hours about this. Mm -hmm. I, I certainly realise that. So um, is there any evidence that um, there's differences in the quality of care by all the different uh, groups that are involved in uh, maternity care? Very important question. You and I know that research... So research answers the questions you ask and the data that is published is usually not all the data that is collected and how we slice and dice the data and who we ask and how we ask, all of these influence the outcome. So Cochrane 2016 is often cited by our midwifery colleagues as evidence that midwifery care, midwifery-led care, provides the best antenatal care for women. Uh, and certainly the results of, of uh, that paper are very encouraging uh, and complementary to our midwifery colleagues. Uh, but these were low-risk women. Uh, the data gets a little bit mixed because some of the, the I think about 50% of the data came from Australia, but the midwives at that time working in our hospital sector were not working in an isolated midwifery model of care. There was obstetric input, medical input, anaesthetic input and such. So it kind of muddies the water uh, a little bit and it's been extrapolated from the low-risk women, which Cochrane 2016 was looking at, to, to be this kind of all-inclusive thing that all midwifery-led is, is, is good and is safe. Uh, and I think that midwifery-led and midwifery uh, care is, is excellent. And if you could only choose to have one care provider for all the women in your nation, you would choose midwives. They do most of the deliveries. Most of them are straightforward and, and without need for medical intervention. But that's not 
that's most, it's not all. And our medical expertise, be it in general practice with our understanding of, of asthma and diabetes and anxiety and depression and, and uh, the thromboembolic events and such in our obstetric and our medical colleagues, all of these things uh, help to safety net women around the entirety of them. So sometimes um, women in pregnancy, the lens through which they're viewed is is this tight little pregnancy blinkers on pregnancy view. But you would know as as practicing GPs, it's much more complicated than that. We are we are the sum of all of our parts, and then some. You need to throw in the community aspect, our relationship aspects, our relationships with our mother aspect. It's complicated, and I think that the best care is team care, genuine team care, not lip service team care. And it depends to what the woman is looking for, what she values, what what choices choices she wish, wishes to make. We would all agree that a known carer, somebody that the woman has a relationship with or develops a relationship with, that this is very valuable. Uh, and we see this across general practice research as well as in the maternity um, setting. Um, so it depends what the woman's looking for. Some women choose to have an obstetric model of care because they, they want to have a, a level, they're comfortable with the level of intervention or, or, or the potential for intervention. Some women choose a midwifery or even a, a free birth, home birth situation. Not that home birth is the same as free birth. Uh, free birth, of course, where there is no attendant home birth. Um, hopefully there is at least a, a professional midwife there. Um, so depending what the woman is looking for, for her birthing experience, will be where she, she tracks naturally too. But wherever she tracks too, there will be elements where other members of the team can value add. Um, so, so a significant percentage of women who do, in Queensland at least, the, the data uh, says a significant percentage of women who plan for home birth end up transferring uh, for a birth in a hospital and that's appropriate if it needs to be it simply should be able to happen uh, with the safety of the woman the paramount considerations Wendy um, I am listening reflecting on all that you're saying and, and I just can't help but really point out a couple of uh, very important points that you've made there uh, number one uh, which I think is probably the most critical um, is the fact that we should be guided by the choice and autonomy of our patients um, in, in the sense that women should be able to decide the type of care that they receive um, and the type of birth that they would like. Um, number two is the idea that uh, we need to be careful that we are considering a person as a whole. There is a, another point that you make in, in regards to team-based care and I heard once that uh, the best health outcomes are achieved when people are able to work to the top of their licenses. Mm, mm. And, and, and I think that's quite a powerful thing to consider here. Um, what I would like to ask you is that there is, from what you're saying here, a divide between how complex and um, chaotic uh, the, the healthcare system can be, um, the enormous range of options that are available to women um, balanced on the other end with the need for us to be able to provide care putting the most competent people in the place to do the job um, and and that uh, that usually is a few people rather than one 
how do, how can we coordinate the system better? Is there a way that we can? Um, because I find myself very confused trying to navigate this, so I can just imagine how challenging this must be for my patients. Is there a better way we could be coordinating care here? Yes, there's there's always a better way. Um, so for myself, uh, I have my four R's that I, I often come back to when we look at um, connecting the sectors and, and really helping to do healthcare better. Um, and we, we pay a lot of lip service to woman-centred care, um, but in order to achieve that lofty ideal um, and not... And in this context, obviously, patient-centred care or con uh, in a broader context, um, we really need to get our acts together and we need to be less about them and us and uh, less about tribalism and turf wars. And, and, so, and it gets complicated with the financing and the indemnity and there's so many layers to this particular field. Um, but my four hours are relationships, respect, clinical relevance and realistic expectations. And I think probably that first one, the relationship. So, so back in the day when my parents were were the GPs who admitted to the hospital, who uh, were there when the baby was born, who did the um, mum gave the anaesthetics, dad did the operations between them. They delivered most of my friends. Um, they knew all the hospital staff. The hospital staff knew knew them. They knew the mother. They knew the grandmother. They knew the aunts, the uncles. It, it was it was a closed community where people knew and trusted each other, and where they knew the strengths and the weaknesses. It was a very different model from what you see now. When I first graduated, having spent some years in the hospital system, you know, I could ring and I could speak to registrars and, and consultants and they knew me personally. Um, and there was just that relationship as is, oh, okay, Wendy, well, you know, let's do this, that or the other. As we lose that, as we get bigger and we're more disconnected and we're, we move around so we're not ringing people that we know, there's that level of mistrust and, and yes, we should all be working to the top of our license, but some of us don't or some of us don't know what we don't know and we're making mistakes. And then that tars us and that's regardless of whether you're a child health nurse, a midwife, an obstetrician, a GP, a GP obstetrician, whatever your designation in this field, we all go, oh, you know, and we, we in our minds too often we go, oh, well, you know, that lot aren't any good at this. And that certainly happens with general practice practitioners and uh, antenatal care so our midwifery and even sometimes our obstetric colleagues remember better the things we didn't get right or the the um the risks that we didn't identify or the, the gaps where women fell through um, but if we have a good relationship where we can uh can call where we can check something where we can um educate together uh where we respect each other and and, and the elements that we do bring i think that's that's a key thing that i don't know what you know but you don't know what i know and together though we know more than each of us knows you know in isolation and if you want to engage with us, it has to be clinically relevant. It can't be that sort of, oh, we need you to sign this form for us or we want you to refer so it saves us money. And that that's not, I think, what gets most GPs out of bed in the morning. But if it's about the care for the woman, if it's about improving outcomes for her and her, and her unborn child, that we can all buy into. But realistic expectations, Medicare funds us appallingly, absolutely appallingly, for the care, you cannot meet the national guidelines 
using the Medicare funding. You just can't. And the hospitals need to understand the constraints of Medicare and the funding issues. It's easy for them to say women can't afford to see a GP, they can't afford a gap when they have budgets that allow them to spend more time than we do. Uh, It's complicated. Wendy, earlier on you mentioned um, lip service teamwork versus genuine teamwork. I've certainly seen a bit of tension uh, between the various professional groups like midwives, GPs, GP obstetricians, obstetricians. And a while back in a blog post on the Bridge Builders website, you said that somewhere along the way, it seems we stopped talking to each other. And you also said, what if we decided to sit down and talk to each other? Is there any progress? (sighs) Yes, there is progress. But it's often pockets of progress. And sometimes it seems for every step forward, there's one or two steps back. We, all, we are all aware of the gaps through which the people in our care are falling through. But when it becomes then and us, when it becomes turf war, when it becomes um, tribal, and unfortunately this is a very tribal space, um, then all of that opportunity goes out the win- window and the women and their families are the ones who suffer because we disconnect and they don't get the care and the communication that would see them having the safest possible care. You'd be only too familiar with the fragmentation of care. You know, women with asthma sent to a respiratory physician, women with a rash sent to a dermatologist, women with anxiety sent to a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And it's like, actually, most of that we could deal with in general practice. Um, And then the woman is seeing one care provider instead of four or five. I don't know what the future holds or how it's it's going to look. I know that if we're going to keep GPs engaged in the sector and not go the way of New Zealand, where GPs have effectively been locked out of antenatal care and where unfortunately their maternal mortality rates haven't fallen as ours are falling, uh, likewise for their neonatal um, mortality rates, then then we have to lift our game. We have to, we have to be working to the top of our license. We have to identify those among us who don't have the obstetric experience to be safe in this area. We have to keep up to date. Uh, and so I'm quite comfortable to say you need to clear a bar because, and it goes back to what you're saying before, Edwin, the complexity of of this one where there's shared uh, responsibility, shared um, liability. Um, it's it's quite a unique interaction between ourselves and the public hospital um, where we if we are providing shared care the hospital is then trusting us to do the right thing and and to look after this woman safely uh, so that then we'll have the best outcome possible so it's can I say complicated again (laughs) I'm interested to hear your experience with some really good examples some examples where shared care worked really well and, and what are the ingredients that made it well? Was it because of the relationships? Was it because of a governance model? Was it because the different parties sat down regularly and looked at the model and where things could be improved? What is it that makes a complex model like shared maternity care work? I might start that by saying where I think it doesn't work. Sure. And then I'll move into where I think it does. 
So where it doesn't work is the experience, which unfortunately is all too familiar, um, where GPs refer women into uh, public maternity care. They indicate on the referral that they've discussed with the woman and they're happy to provide shared care and they don't see the woman again until well after the birth. And a colleague recently um, posted an experience where a woman who had significant anxiety and she had particularly made the case in the referral that uh, she thought this woman would benefit from uh, shared care because of, of the GP's expertise and knowledge uh, of her anxiety. Uh, and that just simply didn't happen. And, and I, I know from too many conversations with GPs and with midwives over the year, years that often we're just discounted as a as safe, effective care providers in this space. So that doesn't work. Where I think it works particularly well is indeed where we are levering off relationships, where there is a trust that uh, the GPs involved know their stuff. It's working very well, for example, in some of the smaller communities where they do actually still know each other, uh, where the GP may be the GP obstetrician uh, and where there is that trust, that relationship, um, that understanding of the personalities and, and we can then transition a woman into the, the hospital and back to the general practice. But even then, sometimes the hospital loses line of sight, even, for example, in a community like Emerald, which I visited last year, and and the hospital wasn't aware that one of the practices actually has a very well-organised diabetes uh, clinic, and they could look after women with gestational diabetes quite effectively and efficiently within the clinic and didn't need to be using the hospital resources for that purpose. So, so I think it can work well in smaller communities where there's good relationships. It can work well in larger communities where there's good relationships between the hospital staff and respect for the skills that each of us hold. And I think particularly where it does work is actually for some women who, who don't fall into a low risk category where, where for various reasons, it might be medical, it might be psychosocial, um, but where there's a recognition that the GP will be looking after women before and after and interrupting the therapeutic relationship during the pregnancy is not in the best interest of the woman. And so then you have the hospital staff doing what they do best, but continuing to involve the GP in that woman's journey so that that we don't lose sight of and we don't lose touch with what is happening to her medically, obstetrically, um, psychologically during her pregnancy. So then when we're, we're transferring the care back to us after the birth, we've got a good sense of the journey that she's had. And, and I, I really think it's just too important not to have these conversations with our hospitals so that they, they need to understand that when women... Uh, when they finish, when the six weeks postpartum is over, for some women that's absolutely catastrophic because all this care that they've received, it, it just turns off. And then what do they do? Who do they see? And we, as their general practitioner, we don't know the journey that they've had. We're not familiar with the, the complications they had. Uh, and so we're coming in cold to a situation. I just think it's harming women. I think we can do better and we do better together. I feel as though listening to you and, and trying to figure out in my head what I can be doing better for my patients, I feel as though there's an extra member of the room and that, that uh, is always very helpful when it comes to communication and that's that's a telephone. Uh, and, 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 and Phone a friend, yes. Uh, well, well, absolutely. And, and the telephone really should be our best friend. 
Um, yes. But somehow there's a reluctance for many of us, uh, and we often quote funding as, as the issue, but there's a reluctance for us to pick up the phone and just dial our colleagues. And it, it seems as though that would be a very easy way for us to share information with each other. Um, and I'm sure there are other ways of communication as well. But, but do you understand um, why there might be some reluctance? Yes, absolutely. Jez, great question, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, there is this reluctance, and I think it's multifactorial. Uh, sometimes it's the reluctance of hitting switch uh, and just the loops that you have to do when you're in the middle of a busy day and there just is no time to make this phone call. And you hit switch and you're trying to get through to the right person. And our, our, our specialist colleagues have the same complaints of us when they hit the front desk and they, you know, get put on hold for who knows how long. So it, and it, so it works both ways. So what we have done, part of the program that we did develop at the, at the MARTA was that there's a GP liaison midwife and there's a direct telephone number um, to her. Uh, there's a mobile number and there's an email uh, opportunity. Uh, so, so nobody's available, you know, 24-7, 365. But the, you'll usually get contact within you know 24 hours um, and then there's a whole list of direct telephone numbers for the consultant on call be they the uh, obs, obs medical consultant be they the obstetrician be they the obstetric registrar and and so GPs actually have line of sight of of the numbers to call to get through to a fellow clinician but I think more important than the telephone numbers is the permission to call and so when we do the education, one of the things we try to showcase is the team. And we make a point of introducing them uh, and we've got some small group work and, and actually the power of the association and, and the permission to call. You know, I've had a, a GP, uh, sorry, a, um, an obstetric physician stand in front of the room and, and a GP field a question to say, well, listen, what if X, Y, Z? And... Um, and, and the physician said, he said, well, call, call, you know, call my registrar. And then he reflected and he said, no, they'll be too busy. You call me. And the ripple around the room was phenomenal. And it was one of the biggest changes after we introduced the program is that over the years, the GP liaison midwives are fielding so many more calls. And that gets difficult for them with their workday, but they're ever so pleased because it means that women are getting more timely assistance. GPs are provided with the correct advice if the midwife doesn't know because they don't always know the answer to a GP's questions but they'll know who to ask and how to direct that so I think that clear lines of communication but the coming back to the first are the relationships and that permission to call and then I think the other thing because I know sometimes like for example I've called um, and I've called and, and it's the attitude at the end of the phone isn't it you know, so I've called birth suite with a concern about a patient, uh, really to be talked down to um, by a colleague, and uh, and just actually having to put my big girl pants on and and, and say no, um, I am sending her in, uh, and she needs, in my opinion, X Y Z. Please make sure that she's seen by the appropriate consultant, and. And you just, you shrink that little bit inside and that whole imposter syndrome thing um, emerges and you think, oh my gosh, but no, 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 no. We must be empowered to call because that's the safety is that communication, that timely communication and a fax or an email isn't as timely as, as a tele, an answered telephone call with the right person. Wendy, that, uh, I'm listening to that. That is extraordinary and uh, uh, I'm loving your four R's and thinking about how respect fits in here. Mm. Uh, 
and uh, really a, a big thing there is permission um, to talk to each other, to call each other. Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of what we do, Respect is built around what our shared vision is. And um, we can talk a lot about that, but fundamentally we're all in this for our patients and, and uh, their best interest. So um, I heard you say that the, uh, the GP liaison midwives were... Uh, quite happy and excited by the number of calls that they were receiving and, and that the reason for that is because they feel as though the number of calls means that more women are feeling empowered uh, and that their needs are being better met. So um, thank you. I mean, that is an extraordinary effort that you're putting in and your team is putting in and uh, it's good to see initiatives like that. Absolutely. I second that. It is very important. I'm I'm the face of the alignment. I'm the noisy voice of the alignment, but but there's an amazing team behind it. And none of this happens without commitment from the leadership at the top and ongoing commitment, you know, really ongoing commitment to keeping GPs in the loop as a, as a respected uh, and appropriate care provider for low-risk women and understanding that for higher-risk women, they're still a part, essential part of the team. And so it's very important to understand that that these things work best when we work together and that hospitals telling us what we need to know is not as powerful as uh, hospitals and GPs working together to tease out what is it GPs want to know and what is it GPs want GPs to know hospitals want GPs to know you know and and together we can we can identify and close the gaps and the gaps aren't just one way it's not just that GPs don't always communicate well the hospitals don't always communicate well and who do you tell who do you who do you personally contact if you've not been informed about an intrauterine fetal death? If you've if you've not uh, had a communication, if the woman turns up without any records, who do you tell? Uh, there should be lines back to the hospital so that we can call out behaviour that puts women at risk. We're nearing the end of this podcast. Is there anything that we didn't touch on and that needs to be mentioned? The culture wars. Go for it. We have we have briefly touched on it. Um, but we really need to educate together and we need to get over ourselves and we need to be kind to each other and to ourselves. There is horizontal and vertical violence happening between midwives and midwives and doctors and doctors and doctors and midwives. It's, it's, and it's, it's putting clinicians at risk. It's not just the maternity sector, but it's particularly brutal in the maternity sector and clinicians at risk put women at risk. Uh, and we really... We, we have to we have to sort this out. The politics have to improve. We have to find a way to do this better together because lives are literally hanging in the balance uh, and that's both the lives of, of consumers, women and their children, uh, but also the lives of the clinicians. And um, we, we, have, we have to fix this. The system is broken and we have to fix it. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. That is almost a, a topic for a whole new podcast, mm. because you know there's there is something seriously wrong in in healthcare and medicine when it comes to these tribal wars. I'm just wondering where does it come from, and especially if you look at maternity care. Oh, where would you begin? Would you begin with power? Would you begin with gender wars? Would you begin begin with tribalism? Would you begin with turf? Would you begin with money? Oh, I don't know. It's it's complicated. 
So I think, you know, these models of shared care, they have the potential to bring people together, mm. to work on a model that works. And, and as long as you're willing to step out of your consulting room and, and, and say hi, or as Jess said, pick up that phone and sort things out, we should be able to, as adults, sort this all out. Or am I being naive here? <laughs> I think the time constraints... And not knowing who to call and getting stuck at switch, you know, and, and also just not feeling comfortable. If sometimes I think in medicine we feel that we're supposed to be the clever ones and we're supposed to know all of this such this stuff. And But ETG and up-to-date and, uh, you know, closed Facebook pages will only get you so far. There's a point where you're going to have to pick up that phone and admit that you don't know. And that has to be okay. That just has to be okay. That's very true. So, Wendy, if if I can ask you for one recommendation to finish the podcast, what would you say? Communicate. Talk. Talk to talk to the women in your care. Talk to the other members of the team. Talk to your local providers. Talk to the obstetricians you refer to. Yeah, communicate. And and if you want to know a place to start, I also have. Down, I'm downloading part of my brain to my website, not selling anything, not collecting anybody's email addresses. And unless you know me personally, you cannot leave feedback. But I've started uh, www.maternity-matters.com.au. All right. And there's stuff for women. There's stuff for um, clinicians, a um, whole, whole lot of resources just to try to keep us all up to date with where this is headed. Wendy, that was wonderful. I, I just jotted down some notes and I thought I'd summarise uh, some of the amazing conversation we've had today. Um, from what I've picked up, I, th I think there are five elements that personally speak to me. One is culture um, and that we all need to play a role in improving the culture of, uh, of medicine, um, but in particular, think about how we improve uh, the way that we deliver uh, healthcare to women um, and, uh, and have a think about the, the, the term that we use, whether we used shared antenatal care or whether we actually uh, broaden this out to maternity care, which I think may be a better way to look at things. Um, the second thing which I absolutely loved uh, hearing you say was let's all sing from the same hemisphere. hemisphere. Um, and that involves talking to each other and, and having conversations and uh, giving each other permission to have those conversations as well. Um, I like that you said we don't know what we don't know, um, and uh, I think that's quite right, but we should always be ready to find the answers. Um, and uh, also your four R's, uh, which I think we should all write down, uh, which uh, you mentioned were relationships, respect, relevance, and realistic expectations. Um, so thank you very much. That was a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you very much for asking me along. For more information about Bridge Builders, our blog, or this podcast, please visit bridgebuilders.vision.